Hi, my name is Sarah Rachel Brown. I'm a 30-something-year-old woman, and I live in Philadelphia. I'm a contemporary jeweler. And like many others, I am an artist trying to make a living. On this podcast, I'm going to broach the subject of value. I'll be talking to studio artists and performers, educators and administrators, and anyone else attempting to combine their creative endeavors with how they get a paycheck. When I pick up a handmade mug, or say wear a handwoven scarf, I understand the value of these objects. Yes, this mug should be $75 because of the luster on it and the intricate carving on the surface. And why, yes, I did pay $250 for this handwoven naturally dyed scarf because I threaded a loom before and I really didn't enjoy it. And I know that an indigo vat is a lot of work to create and maintain. And they're kind of like a small pet in some ways. You have to feed it and maintain it. And that's kind of crazy to me. But this appreciation for, or more so understanding of why these objects cost what they do, is a direct result of my time spent at craft schools, learning about different processes and witnessing firsthand the amount of time and love that artists put into making these objects. So yes, I will spend $100 on a single cup. But then I do this thing where I'll go to a bookstore and I will I'll hesitate on spending $20 on a book. And I'm not proud of that, but it's the truth. So since becoming a full-time artist, maker, I've really started noticing the areas in my life that I take others' work for granted. Perhaps the most blaring example of this for myself is with books and music, especially music. You guys remember Napster? So both things I love and could not imagine existing without, yet I consistently undervalued their worth. I have taken steps to rectify this. I go to shows as often as I can to support touring musicians, and I collect vinyl records and try to purchase those directly from the bands when I see them play or merch, because I know that's a big source of income for them. And when it comes to books, I focus on independent bookstores, I try not to order books on Amazon, even though it's so easy and convenient. Um, So I try, but of course, with all things, I could do more and I could try harder. From the beginning, one of my intentions with this podcast was to reach out to other creatives whose careers or work that they do, I don't quite understand. And not understand, like I know what a writer does, but I don't really know how a writer makes money. I mean, there's the typical, oh, you get a book published and then blah, blah, blah. But it's not that simple. And all those like columns I read online, like for instance, Vice, I don't know who is writing those and I don't know how they get paid. How do they get paid for that? I don't know. So today's guest is a published author. She's been an editor. Her work has appeared in Vice. She has a column at the Philadelphia Weekly called Art John. And I wanted to talk with Sarah Rose Etter to help gain some insight as to how, you know, a writer pieces together a career. If selling handmade sterling silver jewelry can be a struggle at times, and it most definitely can be, what's it like trying to sell your words and ideas? So just a heads up, there is some cursing in this episode. So if you're listening with the little ones, Maybe take them in another room. Thanks. Whatever. You can always find new friends. It's fine. Did we already start? <laughs> um, I typically just like hit record. Okay. And I, um, I don't let people know that I'm like all going, right. and wow. then all of a sudden I'm just like, so hey, hey, <clears throat> so hey, so hey. <laughs> So, Sarah. Yes. This is great. I'm sitting here with Sarah Rose Eder. That's right, right? Mm-hmm, it's not that's Eater it. or no. anything like that. Everybody always gets that wrong. Oh. 
Yeah. But I got it right. You got it right. Oh, thank yeah. you. It's nice. Um, and we sell, we spell our name the same way, right? S-A-R-A-H? Yep. There's definitely an H. Not that I care about it. Some no. people get a little uptight. I want the extra letters. <laughs> yeah. Well, also with the H, our name backwards is harass. Which, which is even nicer. Which is the best. Better than Eras. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There we go. Um, and I met you like, okay, so I've been back in Philly mm, just a little over two weeks. And my first weekend back, I saw you at a show. And I saw your shoes and I complimented you on your shoes. And then we immediately started drinking a million wines, or I did. Yeah. Uh, and then we saw the black lips. So it was really fun. Yeah, it was yeah. a good night. I was by I was out by myself. And so I was like, oh, I made a friend tonight. This is fantastic. A really good one immediately. And then yeah. you started talking about Dollywood. So I was like, oh, this girl. Um, <laughs> but I also wanted to say that my, my favorite that night was maybe like Pearling Hiss. That guy was awesome. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I had oh. to say that. No, I couldn't remember his name. Yeah. Thank you. I it took awesome. In typical form, I like took an instagram story and i was like who is that guy some guy he just sounds like dinosaur jr he's just riffing really hard yeah and he's amazing yeah i was like is this jay mascus like who is this man he's amazing yeah that was a great show it was a fun night Um, good to meet you yeah and you know true to form i'm like oh you have an interesting career will you come on my podcast (laughs) and i was like this girl okay all right yeah yeah and i stalked your jewelry and i was like okay yeah Mm -hmm. i know i stalked you pretty well in the next day too um so are you from philly I'm from the suburbs of Philly. I'm from Limerick, which is where the power plants are. Oh. So it's very um, Springfield. If you go to my house, we you drive down a hill and then the power plants just rise up in the background. Um, so yeah, I've always, Philly is where I started going to punk shows and you know, all of that. But I did live in Penn State for a while and then I was in Boston. I was a prison reporter up there, but then I, I came back here to get my master's. I like how you just said, yeah, I was a prison reporter up in Boston for a hot minute and then like came back down here. <laughs> um, it was a, that was a strange job. Okay, so you're from the suburbs of Philly. Yeah. Um, maybe we should say, what what is your title? Like, what do you do? I'm director of content marketing for a startup and we're pretty new, like new logo, new website, just getting started. Um, so my background ended up being in the internet. Um, and so this is my, that's my full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. But you're on here because as most artists, like you have a whole other career outside of your career. Yeah. I'm a writer. Um, I write for Vice sometimes, Philly Weekly sometimes. Um, and then I also write fiction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you've been published. Yes. I have a short story collection and then I just finished a novel that hopefully someone will publish (laughs) someday. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And that's kind of where our conversation got interesting to me because you were like, I don't know, somehow we touched on Iceland. You're like, oh yeah, I just did a residency there. And I was like, whoa, I know a handful of artists that have done a residency there too. Yeah. Um, but yours, what's the specific name of it? Um, it's called the Golkistan Residency for Creative People, which okay. is a very Icelandic title. Yeah. Um, but they're awesome. They have a cabin and an art studio that's in a very tiny village. I won't even attempt to pronounce the name, but there's only about 200 people there. Wow. Um, so it's pretty... I would say pretty isolated. Yeah. Um, but it was fantastic. Yeah. And yeah. once you said that, I was like, oh, this girl's cool. <laughs> I was like, instant girl crush. She's like, will you be my friend? I just moved here. <laughs> I was like, yes, yes, yes. Um, so that's rad. And I've had a few people that have done residencies in Iceland. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the same thing. Yeah. There are like two or three big ones over okay. there. And I'm not even sure if this is one. Um, I had gone through a process last year where I decided to apply for residencies. I think I applied for nine, and mm. I think it was between thirty-five and fifty dollars per application. So yeah. it was a substantial amount of money. Uh, the only plus side was I did the application on the writing sample once, and which I spent about four months on that because it's oh, wow. like twenty-five pages of work that you send them, yeah. and for a writer that can get you just want that to be so solid. So I spent probably three or four months on that. I went through a ton of revisions. Um, But once I finished the first application, it got a lot easier to apply for the rest because then you pretty much have everything kind of locked up and loaded. Um, The position I found myself in was that most of the residencies in America were waitlisting me. And so Mm. a lot of those spots were going to people who already had hardcover book deals or went to Harvard or already was on, on sabbatical. So yeah. I felt a bit frustrated because the waitlist scenario was really one in which I would get a phone call and then hop on a plane. 
and then yeah. just vanish from my life for a month, which didn't seem like it was very realistic. Um, and then the Iceland offer came through and I ended up going with that instead of, you know, waiting. Yeah. You could, you could do it on your terms. Like, you know, mm-hmm. when it was happening you could plan ahead and, mm-hmm. you know, take time off, off work. work. Yeah. Like, <laughs> totally. Pack a suitcase. Yeah. Hopefully. Absolutely. Um, so, okay. So going back, you are from that, the area, the mm-hmm. suburbs. Where did you do undergrad at? I went to Penn State University and this was probably before college started to get crazy expensive. I know that. So by- what year would that have been like? To the, I think I graduated 2001. Oh, from college? Yeah. Okay. So I all, all that I know is my brother also went to Penn State, and by the time he went, it had tripled. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I was very fortunate. My parents were able to pay for two of the years, and I paid for the other two, um, which I'm still kind of digging out from now, obviously. I mean, yeah. It doesn't really loans. just go away. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you graduate. What was your degree in? Um, it was in English with a minors in nonfiction writing and journalism. Okay. So like you've always known, Hey, I want to be a writer. Yeah. But we, my father and I had a very serious conversation about the fact that they were not interested in helping me go to school for a degree in fiction uh, in the sense that he did not think it was going to make me employable. Oh, um, I like your dad. I know he, to be honest, <laughs> I, I think it's both helped and hurt that kind of realistic, yeah. very much like, well, you need to work because I don't come from a family where that was ever going to be an option. Yeah. 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 You're working class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then you do graduate and mm-hmm. what did you do right afterwards? I thought that I was never going to find a job because that was when there had been kind of a bit of an internet crash or a boom. Like it kind of ruined everything. It changed the whole landscape of writing. There were no more journalism jobs the way there used to be. So Mm -hmm. I had sent out a bajillion resumes and I started working at Maggiano's as a waitress. And I was on my third day of waitress training and the job um, from up in Boston came in. And I remember oh. that I was sitting in training and they were teaching me how to pour wine for people. And I <laughs> got that phone call and I was like, fuck this, I'm out of here. And they were like, where are you going? And I was like, I'm moving to Boston. Cram oh. this wine class up your asses. <laughs> um, and then I moved to Boston by myself. And it was um, it was a tough three years. I, I do remember that, that I didn't really know anyone. I think I had two or three friends up there. And as soon as I moved up there, I got robbed. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Did Dude, it the, the week- right way. Dude, literally like the second day I was in Seattle, my wallet got stolen and I didn't believe in banks because I was like, up the punks. I'm yeah. not a part of a bank. I don't need a bank. Every dollar I had <laughs> plus my social security card and every form of ID gone. Yeah. Aww, yeah. I can relate to yeah. you. So um, that was, it was definitely, but you know, I, I think it was really good because then on my resume, you know, anyone who looked at it after that was like, prison reporter, you can do this job. Because I was going in to interview inmates all over Boston and, you know, pretty much that whole prison system. Um, okay, so hold up. <laughs> You're a prison reporter. You're applying to any job you can get. Yeah. And then someone's like, yes, we're going to give you this opportunity. Yeah. And you say yes. Yeah. What is like... What does it mean to be a prison reporter? Well, I mean, this was a new website and it was geared towards corrections officers. And so these were supposed to be articles about recidivism programs and what was working, what wasn't. So I would go interview people who were women, like a women's prison would have a butterfly garden. How did that impact recidivism? Right. Like those kinds of things where you're trying to sort of put a nice sheen on what's going on. And I was yeah. young, right? This is my first job out of college. So it took me about three years of working there and doing steady research and interviewing and interviewing and just really like, it's not adding up, Yeah, right? Like I, I would go into the Massachusetts Treatment Center for the sexually dangerous and they would say, you know, we need you to interview these two people who are sex offenders and they're going to get out in 25 days. And you're like, Oh, great. Fuck. I'm tw- <laughs> I, you know, I'm, tw- I'm, a, I'm 24. Yeah. Right. And so that job just ended up really taking a toll. And more so, it kind of shaped this idea for me that the prison system was so deeply corrupted and that we were releasing these like offenders who were definitely going to do bad things again. And then also keeping people for like minor offenses like weed. And, you know, so that opens a whole nother can of worms. But um, so <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was pretty over that job and I was ready to leave Boston. It wasn't really my city. And, you know, yeah. well, first of all, I've been told like, A, Boston is 
insanely expensive. Yeah. B, how much does a prison yeah. reporter actually make? Yeah. I mean, I was living in a basement apartment in Brighton, which is kind of like a college area. And I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't making a lot of money. No, I mean, I was, yeah. I do remember times where I would get my paycheck and I would be negative 300. You know what I mean? Well, and then like, it would come through and you're like, thank God. Well, like, like with a prisoner reporter, are you salaried or do you, I was are you salaried. Oh, oh, I was okay. salaried, but it was very low. Like 15 bucks an hour or something? No, kind of it was, I mean, it, I think it had to be like $28,000. You know what I mean? It was something yeah. like that where you're like your first full-time job. job. But for a city like Boston, that's nothing. Yeah. So, um, and it got, the pay got better after that. Um, the numbers are a little fuzzier for me because I was so young then and I, anything felt like a lot of money, right? Yeah. Anything that wasn't me working at Maggiano's felt like it was. Yeah. yeah. And you're hungry for experience and whatnot. So yeah. you're going to do it. I mean, yeah. I would have said yes in a hot minute. Yeah. But I also, I mean, I don't remember in that time of my life, I don't remember going out a lot. I do remember eventually they did start paying me enough that I could move to the North End. And I had a roommate and, you know, the rent was maybe 800 bucks a month. But I know the first apartment I had was a, a hole. Yeah. For sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was like a, you know, oh gosh, now that I'm saying it out loud, it was like that whole like <laughs> futon in the same room as the kitchen kind of thing. Well, I was talking to somebody about the first place I lived in Seattle and I was like, yeah, my roommates would tour all the time and they didn't want me to stay in the house by myself because we're pretty sure our neighbor was a meth head and they're like, they're definitely going to break in while we're gone. Yeah. I was like, oh, great. Thanks. I feel very safe Love here. Love it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so then you go back down to PA, mm-hmm. leave Boston. Mm-hmm. And what'd you do back here? Um, I was applying. I had never really shown anyone my fiction. I think I had gotten a couple stories published when I was in high school and I had always kept writing, but I didn't really know anything about sending work out. I didn't really know if it was good. So I started to apply for graduate school programs in fiction. And I think I only, I took my GREs and I thought- What's a GRE? It's like a graduate exam that you need to take to apply to certain writing programs. So- I took this exam and there's a, you know, an English part and a math part and I completely bombed the math. I mean, it was like so embarrassing and I like killed the English. But so afterwards, this is a, this is actually a really good example of, you know, you don't know what you don't know if no one's taught you these things before. Yeah. So my score in math was so bad that when they asked me what schools I wanted to send my results to, I said none. So I basically blew $135 <laughs> on this test and then didn't show anyone. I found out later that no writing program cares what your math score is and oh. that I would have been fine. And so that actually kept me from applying to probably most of the top tier Dang. writing programs. Um, and then I got into, there are two down here. There's one at Villanova, or no, I'm sorry. There's one at Rosemont and then there's one at Temple. And um, the one at Temple required a GRE, so I didn't apply for that. And then I applied for the one at Rosemont and I got in and they waived the fees. And um, it seemed like a good fit because I had a full-time job as an editor and I could go at night. Yeah. So basically I moved back in with my parents and I lived in their basement for two years and I worked full time and I took class at night. And during that time, I also got accepted to the NYU program. Um, but that was, I think I'm a little bit fuzzy on these numbers, but I think this is right. It was around $80,000 a year and they were wow. offering me a $20,000 a year scholarship. And so I remember sitting down with my dad and you know crunching the numbers and him saying, you know, if you're not going to graduate from this program with a cure for cancer, I can't tell you to go because you're going to be paying a thousand dollars a month in student loans when you get out. Like there's no way around it. And so I really Mm -hmm. started to balance what the, what the promise was, right? Because the promise for a place like, you know, NYU is that you're going to graduate with a book deal. Um, but even with that, if you're not looking at like, you know, commercial mass market, six figure fiction, that doesn't really net out. And I knew that I wasn't doing that kind of work. So um, I ended up going to Rosemont and I think in total, it ended up costing me $8,000. I paid out of pocket while I went and I took out $8,000 in loans. And so um, I'm pretty lucky because for a master's degree, that's like nothing. Yeah, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. But it also, I mean, I tell people all the time, like I didn't get laid for two years. Like how much is that worth? <laughs> Just so busy. Like, you try making out in a truck in front of your parents' house when you're 26 oh years old. Like, don't tell me I didn't sacrifice. <laughs> so right. Oh, uh, yeah. I salute you. Thanks, thanks. Um, what was you your know, job as an editor? You know, I, I worked for, um, uh, it was like a 
B2B newsletter company. And it was like they were printing, you know, business tips for savvy marketers and salesmen, you know, one of those um, with like terrible design, terrible layout. But the money was actually better, like wildly better. And I wasn't going into prison. So I was like, this is great. You know, (laughs) this is amazing. This is fantastic. You guys are going to pay me and like no one's giving me rape eyes. I love it. (laughs) So then, okay, so you got, so you do have your master's. Okay, so what is your degree exactly? Uh, master's in fiction. Master's in mm-hmm. fiction. Yeah, was it? And that's where I wrote my first book, which was my thesis, um, and that got accepted by this place called Cake Train Press, which is known for doing these really kind of like innovative, strange books that you're not really going to find anywhere else. And it was, um, I had sent them a story, and someone else accepted it, and so I withdrew it. And they sent me an email and said, "Listen, we wanted that, and." we would love it if you submitted to this contest. So by the time I graduated with my MFA, I was pretty much ready to quit writing altogether because I was in a program that, you know, it was really for people who wanted to write commercial fiction, historical romance, that kind of thing. And then I was showing up with these like surreal weird just off the wall things and during workshops people would be like is this person on acid I don't understand you know and so I was just felt every time I went into workshop I was like oh god Um, but I was lucky because I had one professor named Dan Driscoll who I think still teaches at Temple um, and he started to, he really got what I was trying to do. And he started feeding me all these weird authors, like, you know, Donald Barthlemé and all these people, Ben Marcus, early Ben Marcus, who were doing, you know, just as strange of things. And yeah. so um, he was my thesis advisor, thankfully. And I don't know, I sent them my thesis and I forgot about it. And then they called me, I think the night before Thanksgiving. And I was in the bathroom, like putting makeup on, getting ready to go out with my friends. And I get this like phone call and they tell me that you know that this famous woman had selected my book and I started screaming right I'm like yeah. jumping up and down I'm crying like my whole body feels like it's made out of crystal and my mom comes like running upstairs and she's like are you pregnant what's going on in there and I'm like <laughs> no I got I'm gonna have a book I'm gonna have a book um and so that was you know it, it kind of changed the trajectory of everything because I think I was really ready to not throw in the towel yeah I think I was ready to not be a writer because I just didn't see anything that resonated with me in graduate school. Well, that's interesting. So when there, when you were in graduate school or even undergrad, like, what's a business class for a writer like? I mean, I don't know. They they don't really offer that kind of thing. I think it's 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 more they teach you how to fact check your stuff and make sure you're writing sentences. Um, for me, I think it was. I always tell someone if they get an English degree, they have to know how to use it when they get out, right? Yeah. Because you're really, there's a, a lot of people in this world, especially, you know, rich men can't write. <laughs> and <laughs> they will pay a lot of money to find someone who can. So yeah. um, that if you know how to work it right and you know how to like, you know, combine journalism with a little bit of creativity, you can find yourself in all sorts of places with an English degree, right? Like prisons and... <laughs> yeah. Or writing like a famous person's book for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So then what did you do? What was your first job after that? So you get this book. I oh, get, you get that award. Yeah. Question. Yeah. The award. I mean, there's prestige around that. There's, there's prestige. There's, um, I is think, there money around mm, that? I think I, I want to say for some reason, $600. Okay. <laughs> is what I, <laughs> I think You're like, it was, it was that, I think it was that that they gave me maybe $500 and then a little bit more, but that, that book did go into print, I think three times. So it didn't have an ISBN number, but for some reason it hit big, or actually I do know that like there were some other writers who were, you know, much bigger than I was who, you know, gave me a lot of support. Blake Butler is one of them. Um, you know, Roxanne Gay was another one. Um, Matt Butler, or they, or they all just really helped me out. So you just said so many things I don't know. <laughs> okay. So first of all, when you do get a book published, I'm assuming not all publishing deals are created equal. No, not at all. So, um, with this press that you said, they kind of go for like the weirder quirky and they're smaller. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming they don't have a lot of money. They no. can like invest in you to literally put your book out that's but it that's about it yeah and I paid I'm pretty sure that I paid for that whole book tour which is not uncommon uh, okay almost, so you usually publish a book and then you do a book tour yeah and that's to promote it at certain mm-hmm. places yeah and so there's a kind of this whole writer underground that people don't really talk about where you like end up going to a city and either getting an Airbnb now you would get an Airbnb but like you would usually just sleep on someone's couch right or you would yeah 
um, you know, find the cheapest place to stay. Um, we, I know quite a few writers, you know, we used to just completely swap houses. Like I'm coming to your city. I'm going to sleep there when you come here, you know? Okay. So there's kind of this weird, like, it's kind of like the punk rock tour yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's gotten a little less so as we've all gotten a bit older and it's like less cool to sleep on a couch sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely, that was definitely part of it. Um, but most, most writers I know, unless they have, you know, Roxanne, obviously, she can do whatever. Um, but there are people who don't really have a lot of money behind them. For publishers, it's not, from what I understand, it's it's not kind of where they're putting their money right now. That just reminds me, I mean, the only thing I can really relate to it as easily is the music business, because mm-hmm. I know some of you musicians. So it reminds me of like an independent record. Yep company like they're gonna press your vinyl but mm-hmm. then it's like you have to sell those vinyls to pay them back yeah and you're booking your own tour and you're playing house shows yeah. and crashing so then um so so you kind of have this network kind of like my friends have networks with venues mm-hmm. you have a network with like where do you where do you go on a book tour is it always just a bookstore or i mean you can read anywhere and my to be honest i'm kind of the bookstore is cool because they can do inventory and they can you know work through a bookseller and like yeah. get your get your book there um but i always liked weirder venues right like yeah. i always have I always will. I mean, I remember went to see Amelia Gray. She did a reading in a zoo, right? As she was what? reading like next to like a, you know, the cage of something, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, I always, I like the offsite. We call them like kind of offsite where you're not in a bookstore, yeah. you're in somewhere weird. But I mean, I've read in music venues. I mean, you can read anywhere. And I mean, like with shows, it's usually like donation or mm-hmm. like there's a whatever. Is it kind of the same thing where no, it's like you're lucky to get 50 bucks a night? Or There's no donations. It's usually on book sales. And I mean, I can't speak for other writers. Um, I can speak from what I saw when I ran a reading series. You know, writers get, you know, a cut of the books sold. But then if you have a bookseller who comes in, you know, as does the publisher, obviously. Um, so you're not usually leaving with cash in hand. Man, this is fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so then you said ISB? ISBN, right. Okay, and I've seen those. Yeah, yeah. I read books. Yeah, you're you're hip, you're in it. Uh, What does that mean, though? Um, ISBN is that kind of like barcode on the back of your book, and, you know, this press was so small that I didn't have one. Uh, So the fact that it, you know, sold anything is kind of a miracle to me still. I still am like, wow, how did we even? (laughs) And so when you said you had three different presses, it's like kind of like with a vinyl pressing, they'll press a hundred first. And then if they'll sell out, then they'll press another. So it's kind of like. I forget how big the runs were. I know that I I thought that it was good. (laughs) I vaguely remember thinking it was good. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Well, that's really interesting to me. Um, because I, yeah, I just, I don't have any idea how all that well, works. I, yeah. I mean, I have the big caveat here is like, I'm not famous and I'm not, um, you know, there are writers of bigger stature who have completely different things going on. I mean, if you work with anyone who's not a small press, you, you're kind of in a diff- completely different boat, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, but there, I mean, it's like when you're starting out, the majority is in this boat. Yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. The majority of my friends who have been musicians all their lives are still in this boat. Yeah. Yeah. So that's you what I know. I'm if you get out of this boat, I think that's the question, right? We don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just, I'm like, <laughs> here's still a boat. Here. Yeah. Um, so you had that press and you got that award. So do you know, like, did something come from that? Like the notoriety uh, of it? Did it lead to a job? You know, I don't know. I think. Well, a couple things happened. One is that I started a reading series, A Tattooed Mom, um, with another writer named Christian DeBordo. And, and Tattooed Moms, you guys, is a bar It's here. a bar. It's covered in graffiti, and it's got bumper cars in it, and you just sit in there, and we would have readings. And um, I started to bring people from different states and different cities to Philadelphia because it seemed like they were always going to New York. And so then we really tried to make Philadelphia like a place to be and do a reading. Mm-hmm. And we had some epic, epic nights. That went on for about five years, and I stop because I realized that like I was going to need to stop to finish a book because getting five writers six times a year in one place is just like That's stapling crazy. jello to a wall. Um, <laughs> so, so much yeah, coordination. It was a lot of work, um, but it was awesome. I mean, we, we created, you know, some killer nights there and that series is still going on. It's being run by Jamie Fountain and Mike Ingram. And um, yeah. And I, um, so that happened. And then I think, um, I eventually did sell the rights to the book um, to a French press. So that 
just came out in France last year. I mean, what is the name of your book? I haven't even asked. Oh, Tongue Party is the name. In, I like how in, like, you're <laughs> just like, oh, right. I'm sorry. The that's, the, yeah, that's the name in America. Um, I think it's kind of hard to get copies right now. It's like, seems like it's out of print, but I, th- I have a couple, you know, bootleg. I copies. was actually going to look. Yeah, I want a copy. <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple bootleg copies kicking around. Um, and then I was lucky enough that it got published in, Fran- in France. Um, that title is different, though, because of the translation. It's called Men Under Glass. Um, and they've been awesome to me over there, actually. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a big deal, right? Yeah. Like, I well, remember my first friends were like, we're touring Europe. I was like, you're going across the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> the big O, the big C. Um, yeah, that has been, I've been so lucky, and I don't know how I got that lucky, and I hope that, you know, I can live up to it with this next book. Did you go over to France at all? Yeah, I just went there. Um, they had me over for something called the Society of St- for the study of American women writers. And so I did a keynote speech on feminism and surrealism. And then I did two readings. Oh. And I, yeah, and I was really lucky. I got over there and there were, you know, a bunch of people and they had all read the book and I couldn't believe it. I was just kind of floored because it yeah. was like kind of packed houses and I didn't know how it had happened. Because here in America, I did a ton of legwork. I remember when they told me they were going to publish the book that I, you know, I promised myself I was going to work as hard as I could um, and get it get it to sell out because I, yeah. I did feel like they were investing in me and that I wanted them to make their money back as a small press. I didn't want them to take a financial risk on me and then me not back it up. Yeah. Yeah. So when you went over there for the whole thing in France, um, was it in Paris? No, it was in Bordeaux. Did they pay for you to come over? Like, mm, yes. Like flight? They, they paid, paid for my flight and they paid for my hotel. Um, oh, nice. I paid for food. Um, yeah. But I mean, yeah, it was great. It's a free trip to France. Yeah, That's it was really cool. It was awesome. Oh, yeah, congratulations. Oh, thanks. You know, it's little things. So, <laughs> yeah, it's little things. <laughs> it's the tiny things. Um, but also, I mean, again, I can't stress this enough. Like, I'm, I'm such small beans. Like, yeah. there's so many bigger writers doing yeah, so much more. But yeah, you're. I feel very lucky that it's kind of like the little book that could because it just doesn't die for some reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> keep on checking. Yeah, keep going, little guy. Um, so through all of this, though, you're in Philly. What are you... Like the readings at Tattoo Moms and all this, this is a, this is like passion project, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. it's not really making your living. So, what is your career on the oh, other side doing this yeah. while you're doing this? Yeah. So then, um, the book came out, and then I got a job at a startup, and I worked there for about three years, and that was, I. I have, my dad is very good at business. And so he's trained me a lot on things to say on interviews, how to handle myself. Yeah, Cause you have a degree he, in fiction. What do they want yeah, you for? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, well, well, here there's two things. One is my, since my undergrad is in English and my master's is in fiction, that seemed to play pretty well with the job market. But also, um, a lot of the tech companies love it if you're this kind of multi-dimensional person. Okay. Like to them, it looks amazing that I've published a book, right? It looks oh, like, yeah, you know, so I mean, it, it it did impact that and it did increase my salary because at the same time as I got the MFA, I also got, you know, a pretty substantial pay increase. I mean, that was the first time that I actually started to make money, like what I yeah. would think is actual money. Wow. Yeah. Um, like you can pay your rent and everything, and then you actually can go out to eat as much uh, yeah, as you exactly, want. Yeah, exactly. Right. Still yeah, like oh, holy shit, I can eat tacos. You know, <laughs> yeah. like it's um. So, but I, you know, that so it did for me. It did both things kind of played together at the same time. And you've contributed to. I mean, I know when I was talking to you and I like lurked you on the internet right away, it's like um, fanzine and mm-hmm. vice and mm-hmm. things like that. And I was like, oh, are you a freelance writer? And just, No, it's yeah. it's really, um, I just, there are certain things that I really love and I get a feeling about, right? Like I get kind of goosebumps for them. And so then I always want to write about them. And this really started actually with Blake Butler. He asked me to co-edit the fanzine with him. And when he gave me that as an option, you know, other writers have done this for, I think, 10 years. The fanzine has been up and you know, is people, that just like an online website? Yeah, it okay. is. And it's it's kind of cool because it just kind of becomes this like clearinghouse of, you know, crazy shit that everybody wants to write about. And so I, for some reason, like everything, I took it very seriously, maybe too seriously. And that's how I ended up starting to do interviews with people that I thought were, you know, really smart and really crushing it and asking a lot of questions about how to make art and how to finish projects and how did they get where they were going, right? And This all sounds very familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Thanks, I'm very interested. Yeah. In. Um, and so that, I think, 
you know, I started to get some bigger people to talk to me. I remember when Brian Evanson agreed to do an interview and I got to meet him in New York. He? He's a writer that I just really, really love and I okay. love his work you very much. You keep spouting all these names. Yeah. I'm like, I'm going to re-listen, <laughs> write them down and then Google. No, I love it. Like, yeah. Whatever. Um, and then it was just kind of lifting up. It, it really was not that dissimilar to the reading series, right? It was hunting down people that I thought were doing great things and then asking them questions about it. Um, only mm-hmm. now it was digital. Um, so yeah. I would interview the band Pish Jeans because I felt like it oh, or this that I kind love of that band. Yeah, that's so, so cool. Um, or like that, you know, reclusive musician grouper. Um, and that was I just I really loved it. It's just stuff I had fun doing. And the same thing for Philly Weekly and even for Vice, right? It's um if a project really speaks to me, then I want to find out more about it. And so So you kind of have a rep or like a relationship with Philly Weekly where they know they know you, you've done things, so like you can just kinda of jump in and be like, Hey, I have this idea. Well, I have a I have a column with them, so every month I have to write something about You art. have a column <laughs> yeah. in the Philadelphia <laughs> I love how <laughs> modest you are. You're no, like, yeah, it's I not just don't do it's not even that big of a deal. Um, um, <laughs> but so that one's been really fun and it's also kind of forced me to refocus on Philadelphia because I think with fanzine it was very easy to start reaching out to people from different cities and different yeah. places. So, um, but yeah, it's it's been awesome. It's been How fun. do you even get a column? You know, I don't know. I did my first interview with this killer writing, writer um, Sebastian Castillo who did a book called Forty Nine Venezuelan Novels that I really loved and was one of my favorites of the year. And one thing that happens when you're pitching articles is you realize kind of what the machine is picking. So I would pitch something strange like Sebastian and then no one would take it and they would would want something more mainstream. Right. Um, and so the nice thing about Philly weekly is they kind of gave me a platform. And as soon as that came out, they were like, we smell column. And I was like, all right, let's do it. What's the name of your column? Like, is there Art, art John's art John's? Yeah. Oh, is that that Philly thing? Yeah. That's that word John. Yeah. So, it's like J A W N. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that like, give me a definition. It's, it's, it's like, anything. Like pass me that John. John over there. Or it could be you like going to the John tonight. John. No, I don't know. No, not that doesn't work. Obviously. Well, you're like, it could well, be anything. It could, well, it's more like, hand me that John. Are you going to that John? Can you see that John over there? And um, is it like, is it a negative kind of? It can be, but not usually. No. Okay. So yeah. you usually it's John. like an object or a noun. Okay. Yeah. I, noun is probably the best way to describe it. You got to help me out here. Yeah, I'm yeah, from yeah. Iowa. Yeah, I, I know. Need, I've I know. already been called out for being too nice. So like, <laughs> you should get mean. I know. Well, should I think it's going to, if people keep like cutting me off in my car, uh-huh. it's going to happen real yeah. quick. You, it's so funny how quickly you find yourself in like arguments in Philadelphia over nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love my window. I live across the street from a park and I hear fights all the time. All the time. Oh my God. Yeah. It's amazing. It's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Philly. If we're going to fight about it, we're going to fight about it. Yeah. Yeah. So then, okay, so then you have your column and you, when you, when you like do something, say for Vice, right? Mm-hmm. Like you write something for them, you pitch it. Yeah. And they say. Well, I pitched them for like a year and no one even answered my emails. And then one day, I, you know, of course <laughs> you I pitched Roxanne Gay and they're like, of course. And I'm like, oh, fuckers. Like I've been trying this for a year, which was cool because, you know, Roxanne's amazing. And I was happy to do it because I really loved that book. Um, but yeah, so you do a pitch and then they told me what they wanted me to write. And then I wrote whatever I wanted to write. And we went through like an extensive round of edits because, <laughs> because <laughs> you and your writer, you always think you know better than everybody else. Um, and then it came out and it was great. Um, and how do you get paid for things like this? Is it like, um, I haven't exactly been paid yet. Oh, tight. Yeah, that's great. Um, that's kind of the hidden secret. I will say like, you know, Philly weekly is pretty good about it, but most of the places that I freelance fanzine was also good about it. We've since lost our funding, but, um, yeah, they don't, I don't know. I don't know where the paychecks are. (laughs) Maybe like, I'm sure they're coming. Do you talk about it? Like, I mean, I emailed them. Are you oh like, my God. This yeah. is my going yeah, rate? Yeah, no, no, no. They told me how much they were going to pay me. And just. Do you pay per article or is it like per word? Per I've article. Heard that, I've heard that per, in movies. This was per article. It used to be per word back in the day. But now I think with the internet, because, you know, it can be as long as you oh. want or as short as you want. Yeah. Just a I lump sum. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think I'll get, maybe I'll get paid one day. Yeah. And do you, do you sign contracts? Like, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have a contract. Uh-huh. All right. I, 
It's I in the know, mail. I didn't read the part of the contract that said you have to email us for six months before you pay you. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. That um, was in the fine print. I think, yeah, I, I forgot to have my lawyer look at that. When you were in school and whatnot, did they talk about this? Like, as a writer, you're going to need to pitch things at places, and this is how you do it. And Yeah, totally. But, th- but again, that was all before the internet became kind oh, of this right. big publishing, you know, powerhouse so it the rules had just kind of changed a little bit it's still pretty much the same but the rules just got a little bit different and you know look i i don't know exactly how i ended up here people take <laughs> so many paths to writing and if yeah. you would have told me the day that i got my mfa that i was going to still be doing this i would have told you you were you know out of your fucking mind yeah um, so I, I don't know how other people do it you know i hear writers who say it's a joy to write where if for me it feels you know, quite eviscerating and sometimes painful. And so I don't feel all the time as if I'm, I'm the right voice for the community. If that makes sense. I love that you say that because (laughs) I feel the same way about being a jeweler. Like it's like, no, I actually don't enjoy making jewelry for eight <laughs> hours straight I fucking hate this <laughs> like it's really hard and i'm gearing up for a big show and everybody's like aren't you excited i'm like yeah i'm gonna be excited when, when it's I'm, over yeah, yeah or like when i'm there yeah but like i'm not enjoying this experience so i don't even know if this is for me um <laughs> yeah. or why okay i'm doing it like that yeah, right totally i mean listen i don't know i don't cast myself as like some tortured writer and i'm sure you're not some like tortured jewelry maker but it's like I don't know it feels quite different from what I hear right like when I hear like the whole Stephen King like just write a page a day and my dad's always saying that to me and I'm like that's not how it works like sometimes (laughs) I don't sometimes I can't you know um but that's why I haven't I think that's also part of the reason that I've always kept a full-time job I've never been raised by people who made me believe that it wasn't okay to have a stable income, you know, yeah. or healthcare. And so it's very important to me because I, I don't write like other people where I'm going to like show up with a book every year and get that, you know, $25,000 contract. It's just not yeah. the kind of writer that I am. Um, I am going to hopefully, you know, put out this next book that feels like a giant chunk of me and was incredibly hard to write. And maybe it matters. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Well, I mean, I relate to you in that a lot too, because I'm just like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be a full, I won't ever be a full-time jeweler. Like I don't, I don't want to be like, I don't want my own business. I I mean, but sometimes when you're not trying is when it comes to you, which is weird. I've noticed it's like with a lack of, I see other writers who are desperate and how do I do it? How can I get in? Blah, blah, blah. And you know, it's like, I couldn't even tell you. Yeah. All you can do is make great work and hope somebody notices it. All you can do is like lift up the people that you think are doing well and hope that you're picking the right thing. I don't, I don't even know what the what yeah. the formula is, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I will say there's certain things happening for me now finally after like scratching at the door forever mm-hmm. and the one thing I keep thinking is like I don't know how the hell this is happening. Yeah. Like like even when you do start getting those things that you've really wanted for a long time in your career, I'm just like I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, it seems arbitrary. I think that's why we, we kind of hit it off, honestly, because it's the same for me. I mean, this on paper is probably one of the better years I've ever had in my career, but it's also kind of one of the saddest and strangest, if that makes sense. It's like yeah. all of these amazing things are happening, but I don't quite know what it means or I don't know how I got here or it's all going to get taken away or, you know, and I, you know, sometimes when I talk to, I have a very good friend that I talk to about this a lot, you know, part of me thinks that's a result of growing up without a lot because you're, it's, you're always thinking about how's it going to go wrong? Oh my God. Where's it going to go? Yeah. It's going to go away. Yeah. Um, I am. I'm there right now. Like I just got, I mean, I can't really talk about it, but I just got a real job. Yeah, she did. Oh, so excited for you. Um, And, you know, I'm in Philly. I have this, like, great studio. I have this great apartment. And I'm just like... Shit's gonna hit the fan. Yeah, who's what? What blows up when? Like, what is gonna happen? Away. Yeah. yeah, that's just like how I always think. Yeah, though. same, same. Also, when you were talking earlier about your dad, like your dad has some good like lines. Oh, and advice. He, dude, his one of my favorites is how sometimes he'll call me and he'll be like, 
I have a list of three people and I would piss on their graves. And I'm like, why do you have a list of people whose graves you would piss on? What is wrong oh with God. you? I want to hang out with your dad. I know. He's like really, but he, I mean, he's taught me so much about negotiating. And I mean, to be honest, that's killer because as a woman to mm. be able to go into a job interview and negotiate like a man, because he, he told me from the very beginning, he's like, women look at work like it's life and death and men look at it like it's a chess match and the sooner that you can start acting like it's a chess match the better you're gonna do and he was like I want you to take all emotion out of this has nothing to do with your feelings it has everything to do with the fact that you're gonna work and you're going to do it to make money that's what this is it's capitalism it's a game and you either are gonna play it or you're not and you decide that wow and so it once somebody kind of like flips that switch for you it becomes very easy to walk into a room and say, I deserve X amount of dollars. I deserve because I work really hard. I mean, yeah. it's easier to say that stuff when it's true, right? Because you yeah. come from a working class background where you're not going to go in and fuck off all day. Yeah. You know, you're going to be a highly productive person and you're going to, you know, kill it for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if I didn't have him and my mom same, I mean, they both were just, you know, crushing it. So, yeah. So what do you do right now? Like what, what's been going on recent? Cause I, I brought you up to your book was in France <laughs> and you're doing all these things. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling pretty hungover and wrung out because I, uh, I <laughs> like finished? literally no, or no, no, no. metaphorically, metaphorical, metaphorical. Cause you look good right Thank now. You, so. Thanks. Yeah. I haven't been out drinking. Um, I finished the first draft of my book and it's, been six years or seven years since my first book came out and the second book is always the hardest and so I went through a draft and then you know I had this kind of big life change that made me look at that work and not like it anymore so really this is probably my second or third book but I just didn't publish the other ones yeah um but this one is my book and now it's going to go through edits and then I'm going to see if anyone wants to publish it and it is uh, exciting and nerve wracking because, you know, I'm still I've been publishing short stories, you know, the whole time for the last six years um, that writing a novel has been completely different and completely uh, unexpectedly complicated and crazy. So it feels like I really keep referring to this book as a tumor. It feels like I have taken <laughs> oh. a tumor out of my body. <laughs> oh, man. Um, it's it's intense. Yeah. Well, didn't you go to a really pretty place to like get that tumor out yeah, of there? <laughs> I did. I did. I did. Um, um, yeah. So yeah. Okay. So you going back, we mentioned it earlier, you went to Iceland mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. had a residency. Yeah. So the residency was, um, since this is about, you know, we talk about money here and perceived value. Um, after this residency required a stipend of, I think, I think it was 600 or $700 for the month. And I also had to pay for my airfare, which I paid $300 to fly out of Baltimore. And my family, yeah, my family drove me down there or my, yeah. Um, And so ultimately when I looked at that on paper, it was probably about $1,000 for the month, but Mm. that's not that different from like my rent. No, that's not bad at all. Yeah. And especially because I was in a foreign country, like, let me be very clear. If it had been a residency in America, I would never have spent that kind of money. Um, yeah, because yeah. you're getting the experience of going to Iceland, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, how many ways can you go to Iceland to live for yeah. an extended period of time? And, you know, the thing I always think about with this is not all residencies are created equal. No. And I love when people are like, I'm going to this residency, but I know people who have done residencies in Iceland and they've paid, um, I feel like, more money definitely or not even gotten a stipend yes because there's residencies all over the world and if you're willing to pay a thousand dollars for the month or to get there you can do anything you can have a residency totally i define residencies different for myself just because i've come from working class and i've always been broke Mm -hmm. that it's like you literally have to pay me to be able to get there Mm -hmm. Um, i need it all yeah Yeah. i do need it all yeah Uh well the thing that's hard for writing it everything that I understand and I have a lot of debt to pay to um, Carmen Maria Machado who's another writer who's amazing her book out right now is called Her Body and Other Parties and she's awesome she taught me that you really have to as a writer apply for many years in a row mm-hmm. and that because I got on the wait list the first my first round which was great but it yeah. also meant that the, my next option was to do it all over again yeah. the next year. And I really, one, financially couldn't stomach the thought of that. Yeah, and, like 50 bucks a pop, that adds up. Yeah, and two, and I mean, like, let's talk about access here, right? That means there are a ton of writers who can't even afford to play ball with yeah. us. And not only that, but like, these are 
coveted spots, right? Like these are top tier writers are getting these spots and they should, right? I I guess, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how we wanted to find this system, but, um, you know, I was just, I was ready and Iceland is what was available and I could afford it. And it was one of those things where it was like, all right, I got a tax return. I'm going to take off. I quit my job before I left. So I had two weeks of vacation and then I got fronted two weeks of vacation from my new job. So I managed to pull it off like that. But, you know, I also had, you know, healthcare in between there that I had to make sure that I had because I knew if I went to Iceland without healthcare, I was going to do something stupid like fall in a fucking volcano and <laughs> burn all my skin off. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it's it's um, it's interesting, too, because there are a lot more writers that I actually knew who had gone to this residency and I had never heard that they had been there. And so yeah. I got there and saw like the kind of roster of alumni. And I was like, wait, I know those people. And we've never talked about that they came here. So huh. it, I don't know. Residencies are just kind of interesting to me. There seems still to be a little bit of a veil that I don't fully understand. But, you know, for people who want to apply, I mean, if you don't have the money, I don't know how you do it. Yeah. And like, if you don't have the money to be able to take that time mm-hmm. out of your life, that's the oh, part I always God. like. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I, the way that I'm looking at it is it is completely a privilege. Almost anything to do with art financially is a privilege. If you have the time and the money and the resources, then you can create work. I mean, yeah. like, I, it's very easy to say writing is a cheap art because you really just need a pen and paper. But I, I knew full well when I got my MFA that I was doing it so that people would have to pay some attention to me because it is yeah. a legitimizing credential. It is a, it, it, I didn't want them to have an easy way to write off the work and say, no, we don't need to listen to this. And, mm-hmm. but I know again, that's a, that's a, a class decision. That's a decision about money. That's something mm-hmm. that I had the ability to do. I had a family to live with. I had a way to apply, right? Like, yeah. Um, so all of this is, is very wrapped up in money and access for yeah. sure. I mean, I hate to say it, but I, I mean, I had three years of very privileged existence. Yeah. I mean, I was broke yeah. <laughs> and I had people come through to help me out when I was not going to make it on my own. Um, but the lack of diversity was very obvious yeah. in these places. Yep. And that really speaks to the type of people that have access to it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that was like hard to stomach. If I, I mean, I'm sure that if I didn't have a job in the internet that I would not have been able to do any of this. And so it's kind of a catch 22 because mm. artists very much tend to kind of romanticize brokenness, right? Like I'm, yeah. I'm so, I'm a, I'm a poor artist Ugh. and a starving artist. And, um, it, there's nothing romantic about it. Yeah. There's nothing. It's not, I don't think it's cute. It's not a cute. It's, <laughs> it's stressful and it's hard and it's difficult. And so, you know, I, you work your way to get out of that if you can, and then you mm-hmm. don't want to go back to it and you hope that you're lucky enough to, you know, go to Iceland and write a book for a month. I, you know, and even when I say that out loud, it makes me kind of stick to my stomach. Because it's, <laughs> it's true because it's like, well, um, you're not an asshole. Well, but, yeah, know. but I, you know, I, I know I knew what I was doing was something that only someone who was very lucky would get to do. And yeah. it, at times it does feel like you're standing outside of yourself, looking at someone else living your life because it doesn't feel real and I mean Mm. to the point where I was having kind of panic attacks before I left because sort of what we were talking about earlier I was like what's going to go wrong yeah and you know three days before I left they sent me an email and they're like no other artists are going to be there it's just you by yourself and so then I was staring down you know (laughs) 30 days in a cabin with like my crazy fucking brain thinking like am I going to go nuts am I going to you know get depressed am I going to and you know it ended up being fine and first world problems right um but I just think that it's good to be transparent about how much these things cost and how hard they are to get into yeah yeah because like the first the first hurdle is like actually getting it and then it's like oh no now the real hurdle comes yeah pay for it yeah and then also I mean the other part of that is what a privilege, right? To be on a wait list where they think they can just call you two days before and you can drop everything in your life. I don't and understand I, <laughs> that. Like, who can do that? I don't get it. I don't know. Oh, man. Yeah. If, if you're one of those people that have done that, call me. Yeah, let us know. What Come are you on doing the podcast. out there? Hey. Yeah. Um, so I just really respect the fact that the way that you have formulated your career, right? Like you've chosen, you've chosen the internet. Don't shake your head like that at me. I can compliment you if I want, but I mean, I'm kind of gunning for the thing that you have right now. Like I want a job that I can have benefits, a, like a 401k. I don't even, I had to Google that cause yeah. I didn't even know what it was. Yeah. And 
but then I can have my studio practice and not have to rely on it Mm -hmm. for my income or be a struggling artist and whatnot. Um, I want security. I want to buy a house. Yeah. You want to, I mean, you end up kind of wanting both. And it also, for me, it was kind of a, you know, watching my parents go through it and thinking, okay, you know, it's all punk rock to sleep on everybody's couches and try to sell this book when I'm young. But like, how do I want this to look when I'm 40? Right. And that's a completely different mindset. That's a completely Mm -hmm. different thing. So, um, I don't know. I, you know, part there's, I go back and forth about this because part of me is like, shouldn't I have risked it all and just been a writer and just let it all happen. And maybe, but I just don't know that I'm that kind of person. I don't know if, if where I came from lends itself to me wanting to continue that existence. Well, from my perspective, you are doing it. Like the writing series you've done, you've published books, you're still writing, you're still being active. Like, um, I don't think that you gave up a whole lot. No, I know, but I, you know, maybe in another life I would have been writing full time, and I don't know what it would have looked like. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah no, I, 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 I get that. I think, but that. I, but you know, I, I, you, you land where you land, right? And there's yeah. only so much you have control over. So a lot of times, I just feel like this is all icing on the cake. I'm playing with house money right now. Yeah. You know, I do love, and this is something I think about, especially with doing this podcast now. Is like. There's no right or wrong way to do anything. Well, how do you feel about how you got where you are? Um, what do you mean? Like where I'm at? Like your trajectory. What was it? I'm still shocked that this happened. Like I still can't believe I'm a jeweler. I, I think it's, I never in my life thought I would live in Philadelphia. I thought I was lucky enough just to get out of Iowa. Yeah. And when I moved to Seattle, I thought I was going to live in Seattle the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I never... I didn't leave the country until I was like, what, 27? Yeah, same. Didn't think I was going to ever get a passport. So I'm literally shocked almost every damn day of my life. I know what you mean. It was, I had this uh, feeling for one of my jobs, um, you know, they told me that I could, I had to live in London for a month and it was like, oh my God, did you live in London for a month? It was like you, I felt like I had one fucking wheel of fortune. I felt like I had, (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I called my dad sobbing and you know, I, while I was over there, I think I spent some kind of money and took the channel to France and I saw the Eiffel Tower, which my mom had never seen and my dad had never seen. And it's like one of those things where you just, it's sort of an out-of-body experience because you're like holy shit like this is everything my parents worked for was so that I could have this moment and be able to see this part of the world that like they they never saw and they probably never will see you know um and that does not ever get lost on me I mean holy shit all the time but I think about that a lot because my mom I don't think my mom I don't think she ever went to New York City I don't think she ever left the country yeah I think she had us when she was young Mm -hmm. and then she had multiple sclerosis and got sick i don't think she ever went to la yeah good god i hope she saw the ocean but i don't know like i know and like i'm over here like fucking off eating brunch like going to iceland and they're like what are you doing and they're like you know and of course my poor fucking parents are like could you just buy a house and do something normal like what are you doing and i'm like i'm going to iceland i'm not I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Every, I, but but yeah. maybe we're just born with kind of one, the privilege and the ability, but two, I mean, this is a different kind of wave of women, right? Like yeah. the, my mother, I think about this frequently, you know, she comes from that kind of like school of feminism that was much different. Um, yeah. This is probably the first time that women have been single and had the money to do things like this and like really figure themselves out. Like, cause my mom had me when she was 24. And so my mom had me, I think she was 27. Yeah. It's never lost on me that all of this time that I have to like figure my shit out and go see the world is stuff that was not really offered to her. Yeah. That is a good way to think about it. And I know she was completely reliable on my father for her income. Yeah. So when they got divorced, she was screwed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of women will tell you that, it was like they moved out of their parents' house just to move into their husband's house, even even in the 80s. You no, that's know what I mean? literally it. I think she turned 18 like the week before she got married. Yeah, I mean, my mom, my grandparents came here from Sicily, so she was raised by like a very strict Italian family. Wow. And they were not having her like, you know, just out gallivanting around, you know, that kind of thing. There is a part of me that when anything really cool happens... Um, I'm really sad that like my parents have like passed and my oh, grandparents raised that. me and they passed. I know. I'm I sorry. Know. I, I hate I'm saying sorry. it out loud, but it's true. Yeah. But like the first thing I always think is like, damn, 
wish my mom could see this. Yeah. Like, Damn. I wish I could tell my mom uh-huh. about this thing. Yeah. You know, cause there is a part of me that I feel like I'm, I, my drive and what I do is based is like for her. Like I'm still trying to impress her yeah. and my grandpa. Absolutely. Right. I mean, yeah. I think that all the time too, I'm kind of hoping that they're like watching out for me somehow, even though I don't know if I believe in any of that shit, but yes, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Oh, yeah. so, okay. So what is the title of your job right now? Like, what Director of content marketing. Okay. Yeah. Are you happy at your job? Um, I mean, I think I feel like I have the best job that I could possibly have right now. Yeah. And I think that I don't really look to my job for like that kind of fulfillment. I think there's a ton of value in the work I'm doing. Like right now I'm working on an article that we're going to try to get into Forbes magazine, right? It's cool. I love that. Um, I love branding. I love that kind of stuff. Um, it's mostly those things are problem solving and like using creativity and emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I think I kind of look to my writing for like the real fulfillment and yeah. self-examination for sure. And you're in the editing process on your book. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to, it doesn't even, it doesn't even have a title yet. I'm sure. Or whatever. I think it's going to, I, it does in my head, but I don't know if anybody will keep that title. Okay. Cool. <laughs> you don't have to say anything. Yeah. Um, what do you have going coming up? Do you have anything that you want to plug? Are you, you doing know, any readings? I'm I'm really laying low right now because I yeah. need to edit this book and then try yeah, to go you just out wrote on the market. A yeah, I feel book. like I just Never had mind. a baby. <laughs> um, no, I you know I but I'm having the same question for myself because this was a really big year and now I don't really know what's next. So we'll wait and see. I have like more yeah. articles and interviews and stuff like that coming out, but you know, um, in terms of the next thing, I have some short stories coming out in a in a magazine that I really like, so that'll be nice. What's the name of the magazine? It's called Juked. It's nice. They're nice people. Um, And then that it's just kind of like a a mid-sized press. So that's nice. Um, I don't know what happens after this. Yeah. Yeah, we'll Well, see. That's kind of an interesting place to be at, Hope we'll figure it out. Yeah. We can hang out. Yeah, I know. We can do that. Let's go have a wine. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have a glass of wine after this. And (laughs) We're celebrating a couple things. Well, we're already best friends, but we're (laughs) not really. Um, So people can find you at, what's your website? SarahRoseEtter.com. And I'm on Instagram as SarahRoseEtter. And I'm on Twitter with the same thing. Um, And yeah, if you guys have any art stuff coming up or anything like that, feel free to reach out. I'm always trying to cover um, music, books art that kind of stuff yeah yeah okay cool all right well, thank awesome. you so hey, much for having, having me it was really fun yeah i hope i was great. funny enough should i've said more sexy jokes i don't know what people do on podcasts <laughs> I, I always think it's like howard stern i mean honestly i'm such an amateur still i'm just trying know. to figure it out we're just hanging out i'm just impressed by myself when i like remember to hit like save <laughs> i'm glad you did yeah well you did which, a great job p.s listeners i definitely have lost a couple interviews already <laughs> which sorry i think you're doing great Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, everyone, this has been another episode of Perceived Value, the episode broaching the subject of value with artists. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Ugh, this is not the episode broaching the subject of value with artists. It's the podcast broaching the subject of value with artists. Anybody catch that? Hmm? Anyways, this has been recorded and produced by me, Sarah Rachel Brown. Go to www.perceivedvaluedpodcast.com to learn all about this and listen to more episodes. Hey, do you listen on iTunes? Could you do us a favor? Give us a five-star review, please. It helps a lot. You can also find us on Stitcher and Google Play. All right, until next time.